Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Kranva, and Hohokam people. And I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Queer and Far podcast, a travel podcast from a couple of queer friends. I am your sir auntie, Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. The Blasian Blurred, the busiest mixed race, bi-gender, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, and two-time Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane Award-winning podcaster in this podcasting game. And my co-host, as always, is still sh- is still shenanigans <laughs> uh, and still a noob. Still I a wish noob. I could do what you could just do. I, I mean, I, I just haven't found myself on this show yet, so I'm still goofy about it. But today we are being joined by a very special guest, our first guest on Queer and Far podcast. Shay, do you want to introduce our guest a little bit? Well, this is my friend, Quadzilla. Uh, Quadzilla! Quadzilla! I had to do it. Uh, had to we do had it. to do it. Yeah! Uh, and I met, I met this lovely person on TikTok. Um, and we, and I was, I because our, our presence here, or what we want to make this podcast about, is about traveling while marginalized. I really wanted to get the insight of traveling while disabled. I, and there's different variants of disability, right? And so uh, my friend Lindsay, or Quadzilla. Quadzilla. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> volunteered to be on our show to talk about this today. So thank you so much, Lindsay, for being here. Would you like to tell us a little bit about you? Yep. So my name is Lindsay Freisinger. Um, I have my doctorate of nursing practice. I just um, received that from U- University of Michigan in May. And um, I have um, been an incomplete quadriplegic um, for about 10 years now. And in that time, I have traveled quite a bit um, for school at University of Michigan. I live in Oregon right now. And schooling was online, but prior to the pandemic, I had to travel to Michigan once a month. So I flew Mm. back and forth to Michigan once a month for that. And then I've traveled um, since my injury via plane. I've traveled to New Orleans, to Florida, to obviously Michigan, to Hawaii, and to... um, Los Angeles and to San uh, San Diego. So um, those, I think those are the main places I've traveled by plane. And then by RV, I've done two cross country trips to Michigan and back. Mm. Um, and then like every summer we do a four to six week trip where we um, like this year we went to the coast of Oregon and went up and down the coast. Um, another year we spent it in Montana. And so every year during the summer, cause my husband, um, was a high school chemistry teacher. So during the summer when I had off from school and he had off from school, we would just travel, um, in our RV that we have outfitted, um, with, um, ropes and things because I can walk some. And so there's ropes for supports for me to get around and we've, made it as accessible as possible for me, but it's very individualized. Like it is made for my disability mm-hmm. and, um, you know, someone with a different level of paralysis likely wouldn't be able to use 
the RV the way that I have it set up. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of, you know, um, that's a little bit about me. Um, so I grew up in Southeast Michigan and, um, after graduating nursing school at University of Michigan, I was recruited to UCLA and I worked in their pediatric ICU and peds cardiothoracic ICU. I was recruited out there because I worked with the first child who had this external heart device that was basically supporting her until she got a heart transplant. Mm -hmm. Um, that was from Germany. It's called a Berlin heart. I, um, worked with her during my nursing school experience at university of Michigan and UCLA wanted to start doing Berlin hearts. And I was trained by the man who invented it, who invented the procedure and everything. And so they recruited me out there as a, you know, a brand new nurse because I could come in and teach people how to use the Berlin heart and how to care for it properly. So um, I worked there for three years. And then um, my um, college boyfriend, we were together for about seven years. He got into law school at um, Arizona State University. So we moved to Arizona and I got into um, school at Midwestern University in Arizona for anesthesia. And in the year between us moving and me starting school, I worked as a trauma ICU nurse at the county hospital in downtown Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So I saw everything and there's no helmet laws in Arizona Mm -hmm. and people ride motorcycles year round. Mm -hmm. So um, that kind of gives you an idea of um, a lot of what I saw there. There was a lot of bad bad trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Gunshots, stabbings, those kinds of things. I took care of, you know, the, the prisoners um, Mm -hmm. came to us that had, you know, been brutalized in prison. Um, And so, yeah, we saw everything. And so when, when, you know, prior to this, we were talking about triggers, when I talk about like, not a lot can trigger me because I've kind of seen it. Yeah. I've dealt with it all. I've dealt with you know, patients, families, the physicians, surgeons. I worked as a scrub tech when I was in nursing school. So I've Mm. been dealing with surgeon personalities since Mm. I was 17 years old Mm -hmm. and, you know, standing up to that. And then, um, you know, I did anesthesia school and during um, anesthesia school, during my residency, I had to travel for that. So I lived in a small town in Anaconda, Montana for um, six months. And then after that, I went down to New Mexico and I was in Farmington, New Mexico, taking care of um, people um, in, uh, uh, there was a reservation there. And so I was taking care of the Native American population indigenous population there and that was you know there was a lot of sadness but um it was an amazing connection and i got to share a lot of um culture with my patients um they would they were so appreciative of a good anesthetic that afterwards they would bring me food or (laughs) gifts or you know but they were like handmade 
very mm. thoughtful um, things that I have a bookshelf in my room that I call my sentimental bookshelf that has every little trinket and thing that I've collected over the years of traveling across the United States and just meeting people, right? Meeting families. And, um, and I've just always loved humans and how humans are always so different and amazing and they have such, you know, you can connect on, um, on a great level if you just come with humility to people and say, I, I don't know about your culture, but if you want to share it with me, I'd love to learn. That's kind of how I approach it always. Um, and whatever you want to share with me, I, I mean, it makes me cry when people share culture with me. I met a Nigerian man on TikTok the other night in a live, and he was, um, he's going to make TikTok videos cooking some food so that um, I can then make the recipes at home. And it just, things like that, it just like touches my heart in a way that I can't explain because it's just so, the, the human connection, you, you can't get enough of it. And then um, after New Mexico, I was in McAllen, Texas, which is kind of in the Gulf region, right right on the border of Mexico. Like I was a mile away from the border. And um, I was there for six months. And um, February 15th of 2013, I had a weekend that I didn't have call. And so my friend Stephanie and I, who were in anesthesia school together in the residency there, decided to drive up to Austin to go meet her husband. And um, on the drive, it was the middle of the day, sunny, beautiful day out. Um, the speed limit was 75 miles per hour. Stephanie was asleep and um, I had an iPhone with the directions on it, but it was back when our iPhones didn't talk to us. Mm. And you had to put in the code to then open it. Like every time it wouldn't stay open with the map. So I had to look down to put in the code because a junction was coming up and I wanted to see, do I stay on or do I, you know, get off at this junction? And um, in that time there was um, a pothole that I hit and then I overcorrected and I hit the rumble strip mm. and then fishtailed and ended up hitting the grass in the median and that flipped my truck. So my truck flipped seven times and ended up, we were going northbound. It ended up in the southbound okay. side and we did not hit a single car. Um, I was conscious through the entire thing. I um, felt my neck break, which was pretty intense. And I knew that I had broken my neck. Like I knew it. We were upside down, which was great because your blood pressure drops, drops. precipitously when you get it. It's called spinal shock. And so all of your blood vessels just dilate. So my blood pressure was like 60 over 30, but because I was upside down, I maintained perfusion. So like the blood and oxygen was getting to my brain, 
Mm-hmm. So I didn't end up with a brain injury, mm-hmm. which oh, wow. I yeah. would have ended up with a brain injury and an anoxic, it's called an anoxic brain injury. And so, um, and I was able to stay conscious. And when people came to the car and wanted to unbuckle our seatbelts and get us out, you told them to leave. They panic, right? They see fluids and stuff leaking out. And I'm like, no, don't Mm. touch us. Mm -hmm. Take my key out of the ignition. Like Mm -hmm. I, I was able to just, I freaked out for the first probably 45 seconds. It just screamed like, no. And then suddenly my brain just went into ICU mode. Mm -hmm. It's like, I have to control this situation as much as possible. So when people showed up, I told them to check for a pulse and breathing on Stephanie because she was not responding. She had a pulse and was breathing. She'd been knocked out and had a very small brain bleed Mm. that um, it took her two months to recover from that. Um, she had a fractured rib, a fractured scapula, a contusion on her lung, the brain bleed. And, but they took her in life flight. She was in the ICU for two days. She was out of the hospital in five days and recovered in two months. She got pregnant in the two months. And then um, went on to finish anesthesia school. And she now has four beautiful children. So um, the fact that Stephanie survived and thrived afterwards and was able to get back to, you know, her baseline, um, that helped me heal a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I would have internalized that I would, the guilt would have been a lot for me to try and work through. And so, um, you know, as much as I still feel awful that I put her through that experience, I know that she's, she's doing wonderfully in life. You know, awful things happen to us. Traumatic things happen, but there can be a lot of beauty that comes out of it. I know that my journey for like this deconstruction type work because prior to my accident I was definitely a white feminist like I wanted to be a white man wanted a seat at the table you know Mm. that kind of thing but I did not think intersectionally at all at all you know I thought of myself like well I'm not racist right like Mm. I mean that's just I was living my best life, completely oblivious to any struggles around me other than my own, right? And then my accident happened. And that spurred me to, you know, um, first of all, the anesthesia school screwed me over and wouldn't even give me the degree. And so I was like, all right, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to school and change shit. Like, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to sue you guys because getting money is not like, that's not going to help the situation. I'm going to change the system. And so that's when I went back to school and got, I call it my second master's because even though they didn't give me my first master's, I fucking earned it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got my second master's from University of Michigan in um, systems, populations, and leadership. So it's um, akin to a master's of public health, 
Yeah. But it's from a nursing lens and it's from an inter like at University of Michigan, they purposely make everything from an intersectional lens, hmm. which I appreciate. Most of my professors were um, black women and women of color. And that makes a huge difference. And so working with those women then spurred me to start deconstructing, decolonizing, and becoming an active anti-racist. And it's also positioned me to, um, now that I've graduated, all of my loans get discharged because I qualify for total permanent disability because mm. of my quadriplegia. But in order to get the, you know, it's over $100,000 of loans that I have, in order to get those loans discharged, I cannot make over poverty for the next mm. three years, which basically means I can either get a job or stay on social security disability income and keep my Medicare. So I have a position and a title at a local social service organization where I can put that on my resume and they don't have to pay me because I can't get paid right now, Goodness but gracious. I get to, I'm calling it my fellowship. I'm like, this is my fellowship because I, all of my experience is in the clinical setting. And so even though I've done some, you know, um, some of my clinicals or, uh, you know, my um, practicums out in social service agencies while I was in school, I, I need to learn how to write grants. I need to learn mm -hmm. how to become an activist for the, my specific community. Your community. Yeah. Yeah. And so I need to learn all of these things while also providing services. And right. so, it, um, yeah. so that is starting um, this fall. And I'm working with them right now. Um, I don't know if you guys follow Display Don't Play, Display Don't Play on TikTok, um, but she had a daughter who was poisoned by water beads. And so she mm. has done a, I mean, she's going to Congress about getting um, changes in um, exposure um, type, um, type issues. I don't yeah. think, so. I don't think so. And I, I will correct that. Cause I will follow anybody. You tell me to follow, but number one, congratulations on graduating. Congratulations on this new job. But I know this is not the subject that we were going to be talking about today, but it's just sort of like a highlight pinpoint, uh, to the internets out there. Like these are human beings that deserve to work and earn a living to take care of themselves. And the fact that our systems are set up in place that you can't get help or you can't even get a job to, to take care of yourself. You have yeah. to, you have to be reliant. And then you have a bunch of people like who would say that you are mooching off the system. You're mooching off the system for that thousand dollar. Yeah. But or you can't get even... married if you're not married because and you'll lose your benefit. Your benefit. Yeah, your benefit. and luckily, luckily I'm on social security disability, 
-hmm. income, which is based off of the income tax that I paid out prior to my injury. So luckily Mm -hmm. I worked before I was injured. Mm -hmm. Um, I have many friends that were injured before they had a job or before Mm -hmm. they were 18. So those people are on social security income, SSI, which is capped out at $900 and they- A month, everybody. A month. I need, I want everybody to stop. They expect somebody to live in America on 900 motherfucking dollars when people with disabilities have more expenses, not less. They expect the United States government and the people who vote and the people who say that uh, disabled people mooch off the system and they say, oh, just want a free ride. Nobody is getting a free ride off of $900 a month. And it's the money you've paid into the system if you live in a state that collects disability because there's also places like Texas that don't collect disability while you work. And then if anybody were to say to you then, well, you know, it was the money that you earn from the system. So what you're telling me is somebody who has the inability to work and not accrue that none doesn't deserve it? Yeah. Yeah. And so the the big thing is that um, those, the people who are on SSI also cannot have more than $2,000 worth of assets. That's a car. So they can't can't own a car. They can't own a house. They have to apply for um, subsidized housing. And the wait lists on that are three to five years. So I have housed people because I, I want everybody to know when they hear me talking I come from extreme privilege. My father is a hospital CEO. My mother is a nurse anesthetist. They both make six figures. They both, my mom comes from poverty, but my dad comes from some wealth. A white European, you know, beauty standard kind of, uh, you know, person. And so I get a lot of things covered and um, I get a lot, you know, my housing, my food, all, I don't have to worry about these things. Mm-hmm. But I talk to people and um, with disabilities in my community so that I can understand the people that have the most marginalization, what they're going through. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'll often talk about like people who are on SSI. Um, and I don't have that lived experience, but I know that they're having a hard time because I've had them in my home. I've helped them work through this. And the big thing is that, like, let's say they want to get a job. Well, then they lose their state and federal health insurance. Yeah. yeah. And unless you're working full time at a job, you're not getting health insurance from that job. And the health insurance that you get from a company does not cover as much as Medicaid and Medicare would cover because Medicaid and Medicare are kind of the standard. Mm -hmm. And these private insurance companies can deny things Mm -hmm. more than, I mean, Medicare and Medicaid already deny a ton of stuff and you have to, appeal a bunch of things with them i mean my wheelchair is considered a luxury item um so your your legs Um, to get around yeah yeah 
Uh, well, let, let's let's uh, use this as a moment to transition over into kind of discussion about about. Uh, I mean, even though it's it's going to be like a complete non sequitur segue type of thing um, to talk about sort of universal design and accessibility as it relates to travel, because for for folks that are learning a little bit from from your intro about the difficulties that disabled people and people with disabilities yep. um, experience. One of the things that is going to be really helpful to this audience will be learning how how you maneuver. And I imagine it's going to be different for every single person. And even that's part of the journey that Shay mm -hmm. and I are discussing, too, as as her situation starts to shift over time as well. Um, hearing from anybody will at least start the process to give us and our audiences places to start our research um, so that we can prepare a little bit. So can you get a little bit into why don't we just briefly define universal design and then compare it to the sort of just accidental accessibility that exists? And then we can kind of get into the, how that um, connects to travel. Mm -hmm. oh, My bring thought of universal design is that it is accessible without having to think or do an extra step. So um, like, grocery store doors that just automatically open. Everybody expects it. It's just, you know, I can roll to a grocery store, the motion sensors pick it up. I don't have to press a button. I go in. To me, that is universal design. The aisles are wide enough. Um, granted, some stuff is up too high. So like if they had things all on lower shelves, you know, that would be more of a universal design type of thing. But there are, um, you know, like hospitals, airports, they, they have flat, smooth surfaces that you're rolling over. There's ramps everywhere. There's elevators. There's signs to the elevators. Like um, I think of universal design as um, accessibility that you don't have to think of or look for. Okay. Um, okay. And then, and then there's like ADA type accessibility, which is push buttons on doors, having one accessible rest, you know, stall in a restroom. Um, universal design would be having every single stall in the restroom being an accessible stall. Mm -hmm. So like just everybody gets to use it. Right. And, and that's like normalizing having accessibility, right? Like if a parking lot um, had it so that there was just spaces between each parking space. So every space is an accessible parking space. Because honestly, like I can, um, you know, with my wheelchair, like I can roll from the end of the parking lot into the front, right? I don't need the spot right next to the front of mm -hmm. the, you know, of yeah. the place. There are people who, who have difficulties getting to, you know, they have more difficulty movement. So like having that front spot is great for them, but I try not to take those spots because I don't necessarily need it. I don't need the, you know, the closest spots. And so just like thinking about like, oh, if they made every spot like this and everyone just expected it to be that way, right? 
Um, curb cuts are a great example of universal design because when you think of universal design, it helps everyone, right? It doesn't just help people with disabilities. It helps moms with strollers. It helps people who with have trouble stepping up over a curb. It mm -hmm. helps people who have carts or rolling backpacks, you know? So like um, universal design, it's it actually benefits every single person, not just the people with disabilities. Right. Okay. And then I'll go ahead and put this up. Um, and that, so I have this, but then um, I went and pulled up. So Buffalo University or the University of Buffalo states um, that um, uh, a universal design means planning to build physical learning and work environments so that they are usable by a wide range of people, regardless of age, size, or disability status. While universal design promotes access for individuals with disability, it also benefits others. Just tying into what Lindsay just said here. And I don't know if I need to like, let's see if I can. I love, I, I actually love that. What I think about is universal design is actually what they just said. Like yeah. <laughs> it, it's for accessibility for a wide range of people that actually helps everyone. Everyone benefits from universal design. Right, like here's your shopping. Number one is the, the, the going to the grocery store, right? Doors that automatically open. And, uh, or Charmaine, as we've discovered before we were filming, like uh, I, I assumed that, um, the, the uh, um, going to a ba the bathroom where you're, you put your hands underneath and it turns the water on was a universal design. However, you mentioned. Okay, so I can talk a little bit about this. So the automatic um, detectors for your, for your sink to turn on or your automatic soap dispenser or your automatic towel dispenser, um, mm -hmm. the original teams that were creating those were predominantly white people. Yeah. And uh, from from the story that I understood, there was one Asian woman, East Asian woman. And so she's naturally going to have paler under, you know, undersides of hands as well. So they was working, but it was working less on her than anybody else. And the more they got into it, the more uh, somebody eventually realized oh, wait, I'm darker than everybody else. And so it's not picking me up because it's coded to one thing. This was happening at the same time that the iPhones were trying to do face recognition and it wasn't acknowledging darker skinned people. Mm -hmm. Even light melanated people weren't getting yeah. picked up originally. Oh. So this is, this is something that has been kind of been fixed over time, but it's not consistent across the board. And if somebody did their installation ahead of mm -hmm. when they started to make those updates, um, they might still struggle. So whenever I'm in a space where I notice that a darker skinned person is struggling to get it, I was like, look for the whitest part of your under part of your hand. If you, if you do, or in the case of they, them not having a light, light part, I will put my hand underneath the, the, the thing because I do have a lighter bottom of my hand. But if I flip my hand to the top, it won't catch me. So it's, it's wow. that much of a difference that like, I'm not that dark skinned of a, of a mixed person. And, um, and I, I experienced that. So they, they, you know, trying to fix it type of thing. This technology has existed for, I think about 15 years or so. Yeah. And it's still a problem. It's right. A problem. And that is something that I used as an example of, oh, this is universal design. And then Charmaine was able to correct me on actually 
Not always. And, you know, as a white disabled person, that's a blind spot for me. And um, that's something that I'm always looking for are what are my blind spots? And yeah. I'm very thankful that um, that you were able to point that out to me because okay. then I can adjust my um, uh, examples for the future. And actually, you know, when I use that example, at least put the asterisk there. Yeah. Oh. I, I'll also say that this traveling experience that I've had since we decided to do the show together. So I, I think I've always kind of had a little bit of an eye for um, at least ADA compliance mm -hmm. because I used to be a facilities manager. And so that was actually a um, aspect of my job. And so I like I'm very aware of when a, a hallway is not at least four feet wide or something like that because that was something that I had to do in the job that I did but even with that level of paying attention the the blind spots are 100% there but since we started since I started to travel specifically for doing this show and knowing what uh, Shay was starting to experience and and knowing that I was going to have to keep my eye out for it since I was the one traveling more at the moment um, I'm catching things that I've never caught before but I don't know what I'm missing Mm -hmm. And, that, you know, that's why it's important to to also try to engage in conversation with people that are in those different groups, because then we can catch some of these things and hopefully mm -hmm. incite change in some way, shape or form, if we're able to. Yeah. Because, um, yeah. Because you're we're you know, I'm more able bodied than you. You're all more able bodied than me, Charmaine. And it and that means we have a certain level of what privilege. That means that when we speak up and we get whatever, hopefully other people will listen and some change can happen. Because I know we're going into to travel and in particular, and you just kind of touched it on the ADA. A lot of people that I have spoken to about traveling um, abroad and why they were trying to talk me out of not going abroad is the assumption that because <laughs> America has the ADA, somehow this is <laughs> we have it all figured out we gotta figure it out people and the, the, all the problems the more disabled person down below is like no it's not can you touch on that just a little bit for me Lindsay? yeah so the ada it i mean first of all it's not i mean it is a law but it's a guideline right so mm -hmm. um there's a lot of exceptions mm -hmm. to the ADA that are given to businesses. And you'll often see Texas and Florida governors um, and Congress people um, putting out bills trying to gut the ADA because they think the ADA preys upon businesses. Yeah. Um, and They'll also was, even allow the age of the building to be the reason why they won't yep. adjust for yep. for ADA as well. Yeah, they call it grandfathering, and which I is also racist them, terminology. <laughs> yeah, and I always tell them, I go, it's that's not a thing that doesn't yeah. exist in the ADA. No, and no. so, anytime a place makes any renovations, they need to then do accessible like if they're going to put money into renovations, right? their money needs to go into accessibility first. So if I see a place that has had renovations and they haven't done accessibility stuff, that's when I'll bring it up to them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, as far as the ADA goes, um, it, enforcing it is 
the responsibility of the people with disabilities. Yes. There's no oversight committee. The people There's, with less the the people with yeah. less power. The people with There's, less money to get themselves a lawyer to get themselves to sue somebody. The less access. Yeah. The less access. Don't be invited into rooms. Yeah. yeah. There's no um, branch of the government that has oversight that is like enforcing the ADA mm. rules. The enforcement of the ADA rules is through lawsuits. And this is something that we've we've been talking about since I've been traveling too. Is that um, part of part of what we're hoping to start doing with the show too? Is sort of reviewing areas or reviewing places so we can say like this would be a safe space for you know people to travel under these conditions or whatever. Um, I'm usually walking through spaces from the perspective of a black Asian mixed ambiguous presenting femme, and and so I, my lens is definitely geared towards the way society impacts black women, femmes, Asian women, femmes, et cetera. Uh, but now that I'm trying to keep my eye open for all these other things, there's things that even though I'm the one who's traveling the more and I'm traveling the more because I have fewer, what's the word I'm looking for, Shay? Job? Uh, when I want, when you can go ask, uh, immune compromise. I'm not, oh, immune, yes. I'm not immune compromised general, generally. I do have some health issues, but most of them I'm able to not necessarily be at risk if I go outside, essentially. Yeah. So that being the case, you know, I do go outside. I'm participating in a lot of events right now. And um, so I want to find a place to, to review and say, like, is this going to be accessible? Could I have brought Shay here under the current situation that Shay's in? Could I bring my other friend who's got a different um, mobility disability? Can I can I bring them in this space? But I'm afraid to take up the like to rent to rent those rooms or to get that Airbnb that is mentioning accessibility because I don't want to take it away, knowing that there's so few hmm. options that universal uh, design is not prevalent, that there, that it, me just doing it so that I can review it for my cute little show, I might've actually prevented someone from being able to access that space. Like many ho hotels so maybe have less. I'm going to push back on that. Hmm? Okay. Can't... I'm going to push back on that. Okay. Good. Do it. having, um, so me as someone with a disability, mm -hmm. if an Airbnb says it's accessible, I don't know that it's actually accessible That's unless true. somebody has gone that, mm -hmm. ha that understands what accessibility is mm -hmm. and reviews it and says, yes, the bed is this many inches off of, you know, from the mm -hmm. floor, the a shower has a bench and is a roll in shower the um there's you know bars on the you know around the toilet around the there toilet. is enough room to get around the room the furniture is movable in order to create more space um the um the you know people will say a place is accessible and then you get there and there's a step to get inside yeah, yeah right? and i actually have noticed that exactly and so having somebody who is able-bodied, but is looking at things from a disability lens. Like my husband, he goes and scouts out places. Like we call it scouting. I'm like, go scout it out. Okay. And he goes and scouts it out and figures out, okay, you know, this hotel with a hot spring, I can take my wife here and we can have a good time. But he'll like go and have dinner there with a friend first and yeah. check out the rooms and everything to make sure that it's going to be an enjoyable experience and not frustrating yes. for me because 
we we do a lot of stuff where Mike does pick me up and throw me over his shoulder and things like that. But that's not necessarily comfortable. And mm-hmm. some or something that somebody else can do. Right. What if they're exactly. traveling alone. Exactly. Like I yeah. I have a husband who was a division one wrestler at Ohio State. So like his physical capabilities are far beyond the the, right. the average caregiver. Right. And so we have to look at things like, you know, um, yeah, my husband and I can go out camping and doing these things. But like, if we want to get away, we want to get away. We don't want to have to. So there's like two places nearby that we do our little staycations at. Timberline Lodge is completely accessible, has hot tubs, really cute rooms and everything, a restaurant right there inside that has, I mean, the best food around and it's on the top of Mount Hood. It's the, um, the opening scene or not the opening scene, but like the outside shot of the hotel in the shining. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) I don't, mm. I mean, for, for that alone, I would be down because I, I, I do kind of, and they do, um, around Halloween, Charmaine—that's white like, people shit. Yeah. No, listen. Um, around listen. Halloween, they do a whole like themed dinner thing around The Shining. It's really cool. Oh, That's cool. Um, so, little side note in terms of white people shit, because there is something that I have had to do once, and I didn't realize I was probably calling upon my British ancestry to get through this. <laughs> I made a short film in in Rhode in in Massachusetts. I was living at the time in Rhode Island, whatever. And in Fall River, um, there is the the Borden House. I shot my film in the Borden House. Well, they give you a little tour before it's Airbnb now. So it is what it is. Uh, you, they do a little tour before you get in there and stuff. And so they show you where the stepmother was killed. They show you where the step, the father was killed and everything like that. And most of my, my cast was uncomfortable being in that room. And that was the best room to shoot in. That was, that looked like what I wanted it to look like. So I physically <laughs> laid down in the location that the woman had been killed and every, and I was just like, see, nothing's happening. Everything's fine, blah, 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 blah. But they were expecting me to basically die on spot. And I was like, <laughs> you know how many people? It's been like 100 years. You know how many people have been in this space? So I just did it. And then, yeah, so that was my that was my venture into white people shit. But I was trying to explain <laughs> that, like, people stay the night in this room for 100 years. And nobody yeah. has died from being in this room. But, yeah, yeah. so yeah. I like to look at places that have, like, the... The horror film thing, you know, I'll go, I'll go. Okay, I also okay. am very murder in uh fan. I am a murder fan, I guess. Well, it, crime, true, true, true crime. True crime. Yeah. I like I, I specifically do, murders is my deal. I do venture into true crime quite a bit, and honestly, I think part of it is us as femmes, um, somewhat of a trauma response to the Maybe. fact that. We are surrounded by our only natural predator. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, I mean, in my, in, in, like, in my way, I'm trying to understand them. Same. It's and a psychology to, thing. And to understand what to look out for. Mm-hmm. Because I am, I'm alert at all times. I am very vulnerable. Right. Like, you know, especially when I'm out on my own. Um getting in and out of my car. I don't know, Shay, if you can pull up one of the TikToks that I sent you, but it shows me 
loading my chair in and yeah. out of the truck. And it shows, um, so this is a great example of like individualized accessibility where I have my, I wanted a pickup truck and I have it, I have a specific chair that is light, but it will fold mm -hmm. um, instead of it being like a fixed frame because I need it to fit into the back seat of my truck. And I have a lift that's kind of like a crane or or okay. like a winch lift where you you click it onto the wheels and then you push the button and it lifts it up and then it puts it into the car. And then my right side, I'd say I have about 65% normal strength or, you know, I, I don't even want to say normal strength, but 65% of my pre-injury strength okay. on my right side. And I have really good control of like my right hand and my right leg. And so getting into the driver's side, I lead with the right side first. I'm able to step up and I use like, if I can't use the big step, I have a little step that I can pull out and then it has a rope that I bring it up back into the car with me, but I can get myself into my truck and then I drive my truck normally because my mm. right foot works um, okay so i don't have hand controls Is on my there? truck i do have a steer um a soft steer assist though which is incredibly expensive is but yeah this is it so you can see i can stand up but i'm mm. leaning on the truck the entire time mm. like my knees are leaning up against the oh i see yeah. to kind of hold me up Oh, and, okay. and then I get the seat and the back out and then I flip myself into it. So with this being your situation where you can stand and kind of rest, are you ever accused because people are trash of you not being actually disabled? No, because when they see me standing, my legs are shaking okay. underneath me and they're, they're little toothpick legs. And Here's so, um, Oh, this is a great video of showing this is likely a paraplegic. Yeah. So there is no being able to stand. And unfortunately, in many areas in America, there are no absolutely zero because they don't have to be up to code because they were built before a certain time. No accessible parking. So this is what they have to do to get out to go home every day. I don't. I don't know if sound works with it, but yeah. So this is, that's a fixed frame. So you can see like the frame doesn't, doesn't give at all. It's mm. completely fixed, which is really normal for um, paraplegics. And a lot of quadriplegics have um, like lower quadriplegics have the fixed frame as well. And this is a pretty standard way of um, getting in and out of the car for someone with mm. um, paraplegia. This is like, you take the wheels off, put, and those wheels are super light. My wheels have a motor in each wheel because mm. of my partial paralysis. It's um, basically a bridge between a manual, completely manual chair and a power chair. So like when I touch my wheels, they have a little like, I just barely touched it there and you can see like it just mm. well 
the, it just moves. And this person is complaining that they barely have space to put their their chair together. And yep. then in a lot of places, Charmaine, that'll say that those wheelchair accessibility from the car to the to the the place, they go, it's gravel. Yeah. Yeah. And if like for me, I have the power assist wheels. So that stuff oh. I just, but this but this person would have to do it, it would have to do it manually. Yeah, but with the manual and that's what that's what kills our shoulders. And mm. people with paralysis, that's actually why I ended up with the power assist wheels because I got a shoulder injury, which is weird to say luckily, but I had a shoulder injury in my accident um, because my brachial plexus was injured by the seatbelt. Mm. So because of that shoulder injury, I qualified for these power assist wheels. Mm. This is... These power assist wheels is the first time that the team that I was working with has ever gotten these covered by insurance. Oh, wow. Uh, um, so I want I, there was one video that Lindsay and I, and I think I shared it with you, Charmaine, that made us really, really uh, very upset. And we would okay. like to, to show it. Um, here it is. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Oh, yes. The, the airplane. Yeah. So... This one is there. The ADA applies up until you get into the plane. Once you're in the plane, you are no that it is not the ADA. You have to look under the Airline Access Carrier Act, mm. Mm. and that what happened to her here is a violation of the Airline Access Carrier Act. And in order to file a complaint, you have to ask for someone in the airport that, um, and they have them, they have to, it's mm -hmm. law to have someone who is an uh, like a liaison for the Airline Access Carrier Act. Mm. I have to like, I have to think about it every time I say it because it's the AACA. Um, and it, so what happened to her here is they said that they did not have a wheelchair available. And I think that that's a lie. Um, looking at the size of that plane. Now, granted, the smaller planes where it's just two seats. Mm hmm you know, on either side, the real small ones, the, the, the little pond hoppers where you're on them for like an hour, at, you mm -hmm. know, two hours at the most, those ones, um, don't necessarily have the, the wheelchair just because of the size of the thing. So, you know, those ones, I make sure to empty my bladder prior. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing is they sat her incredibly far away from, yeah the bathrooms, which they could have easily talked to somebody who was sitting closer to the bathrooms and said, Hey, we have someone with a disability. Would you mind trading seats with them? And right. guess what? People are pretty cool and they will trade. But, um, you know, that's something that I've had to advocate for where I'm like, can you just like, can I just ask someone if they'll trade seats with me? Right. And they're like, oh yeah, you can ask. 
Well, like, okay. Also, there's that, other things I think at play here. Like right. if she was even slightly larger than she is, that yes. would have been really tough for her to go mm -hmm. down the aisle. Um, although, you know, like the fact that, that the cart is still there. Like you can see the cart yeah. is all the way in the background too. So they didn't even stop to let nobody, that None of oh. the people on the plane are advocating for her to the that, flight attendants to say, so hey, that's my question the thing or hey, give her my seat. Right. Do, do you, it, um, and then of course getting angry and calling somebody names, Shay, I'm talking to you, may, <laughs> may, may not be the best course of action because I, if I had seen that, live i think i would have lost my shit how yeah. she's yeah. crawling on the ground and this is acceptable to you she's yeah. no not crawling she's dragging herself yeah that's acceptable right. to you yeah. um the cleanliness so, of that floor like there's so well, many things she's risking, that she's risking friction tears yeah to her skin and but people with paralysis are that was her husband skin. Yep. That was her husband that she was holding on to, to lift her onto the toilet. Had she had that wheelchair or had been closer to it, they wouldn't have to been on the ground and lift her up like that. Exactly. And also, and also these planes I know are older. Some of them are 30 years old and stuff like that. But why don't we have larger loos in the bathroom? Yeah. Why, why don't yeah, we have them just, just sacrifice a couple of chairs and the, airlines, the airlines don't want to do that because they make so much money per chair. Yeah. And there has to be an incentive. And that's why, again, we're going into the weeds there, but like people of the internet, this is why it's really important. Like, cause you guys, some, anybody who's going to defend the airline going that they, they need to make money, this and that they got hurt for COVID yada, yada, yada. These people make more than enough money. They make a ton they, of money. They make a ton of damn money. Yeah. And, and they get tax write-offs and everything else. They got tax write-offs and PPP loans to take care of their people during COVID and they laid people off. So Stop defending people who have way more money than you will ever fucking have and start, <laughs> and start advocating that because do you guys also, do you all like, think about it from your own personal perspective. I would like a little bit more room on a plane. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, you know, I, and I also everybody, wonder, everybody is one accident away from being in that position. Right. So yeah. if you, as an able-bodied person, if people of the internet, if we start demanding that they create accessible, you know, mm -hmm. restrooms and have, you know, um, seats that maybe move out so that a wheelchair can come in. Yes, you're advocating for people like me, but you're advocating for yourself in the future. Yes. Because, but you know, we all age, we all end up with disabilities, age. with aging. Um, that just comes naturally. You know, if you live to a certain age, disability is a part of life. Mm -hmm. So advocating now means advocating for your future self. But this frustrates me. And I went off about this on our, which is an episode that hasn't aired at, yet at the time we're talking, but will by the time people hear this. This is the thing that frustrates me about empathy. You don't need to be able to picture yourself in that situation. You don't even need to think that it's going to happen to you one day. You could just be like, a shitty thing is happening to a living being. Perfect. And I don't yeah. want shitty things to happen to living beings. But for some reason, we need empathy to mean I am going to be in that situation or I can picture myself in such a situation. Therefore, I need to make change for myself. And I want to say, like, that won't, like, I would have probably done more damage i think in the situation if i witnessed that woman experience that because i would have flipped out 
caused a scene that would have mm-hmm. been more of a reflection on her than me, probably, unfortunately. And, and I'm going to piss off the people of the internet who might be watching this, but if I just look at this video right here and there, if we had one person of color on that flight, something would have been <laughs> said. Which is why I would have made a scene, because I, I would have seen yeah. it, and I'd be like, you're going to let this person drag their body. Risk yeah. injury, and risk with, infection, risk I all mean, kinds of shit. You, you say that you would have made it worse. Honestly... Having like I've had people stand up for me before out in public, mm-hmm. and um, like one time I had this. I'm gonna get a little emotional because I okay. have some religious trauma. But um, one time I had this pilot who was also a pastor, and he like stopped me and was like, um, "I want to pray for you," and I'm mm-hmm. like, "Cool, do it on your own time, right?" <laughs> And like my husband's there and, and Mike knows not to really jump in on things. He knows I can handle it and whatever. And the guy was like, no, 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 let let, let me pray for you. And I'm like, dude, like the only thing that's going to happen here is you're going to feel better and I'm going to feel worse. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was at Detroit airport and my like, you know, Metro Detroit, my hometown. And, um, a black woman who was one of the um, Alaska Airlines employees that I, I flew back and forth from Michigan every single month for school, right? So Alaska Airlines only had one flight a day that flew out of Detroit to mm. Portland. And so I knew these employees very well. She was walking past when that happened. And she was like, absolutely not you are in your uniform this is unprofessional mm-hmm. you need to get out of her face and i was just like thank you thank you, you. like yeah. thank you you know and and it's like mike could have stepped in but that he doesn't want me to feel like um like he thinks that i need him to step mm-hmm. in you know but just like having another woman come in and just be like I got you, girl. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, like, I like a sisterhood type thing. It, yeah. It feels so good. To that just is what is frustrating eating. about a lot of these videos you see on the internet is you don't see people just Stepping just in. speak up. I mean, I just feel me. like the lack of people speaking up was probably why I would end up raising a bigger scene. Stink, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, but but we're the ones that end up having to speak up after we've gone through that, like that extra trauma, super fucking embarrassing, traumatic. Like, you know, I've I've fallen before and had to crawl myself Mm. across the floor in my house alone, and like the abrasions and stuff and the fear, Mm -hmm. um, it's immense. Like anytime I end up on the floor. It's scary. It hurts. Mm-hmm. And I can't get myself into a comfortable position. Um, I can feel everything down to like my feet. And so mm-hmm. like, and I'm super bony because I've lost all this weight. So like, yeah. I can't get myself comfortable and like just waiting for someone to come get I can't get myself up off the ground without help. So like watching her, like I wouldn't even be able to do what she did. Mm. I would have wet. I would have had to sit there and wet myself, or you know, if mm-hmm. I had my husband, have him carry me, or my dad carry me. But if I was with my mom, we would have been 
Well, if yeah. I was with my mom, she would have put a blanket over me and we would have cast me into a cup because my mom's a nurse and she would have just been like, this is your piss away. You know, yeah. I mean, we've you've been on I've been on a plane with a, a person who died on the on the plane before and they just leave them to. where they're sitting. So if throwing a blanket around someone who can't get maneuver to the bathroom so that they can pee in a cup, that seems reasonable to me. And I want to take a moment like I know you guys don't see it on the screen, but um, this last video that I showed, she had to turn off her comments. Oh, yeah, yeah I see. People were being vile. They were putting it on her. Yeah, I did see one comment that was about like, why didn't you just wear a diaper or something like that? As if that was gonna be Yeah, somebody somebody stitched it and said that. And it's it's like it's so dehumanizing and like they infantilize us right in yeah. a way that is just like and like fuck you, you wear a diaper. That's you know? what I'm saying. Like, like yeah, like seriously, and like what what the hell and then and then what? And then like I'm in a diaper and I wet the diaper and now I have to sit in that. Sit in it for three hours? Right. Four hours? We, we six know hours? That, we know that babies over uh, overshoot their, their diapers and things like that. What if that was a situation you were in? Yeah. Plus, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. As an adult person who's never had to use anything like this, I don't know that it's not going to sit. Oh, in, no. Like, I'm going to feel you, it. You have to change it after after you've used it because oh, otherwise really? you're going to end up with, you know, with a, like, like the a diaper rash or sore. it's like a chemical yeah. burn and your yeah. skin literally fluffs off. You're sitting in ammonia. So they're not even yeah. as good a quality as like infant diapers or anything like that. Yeah, no. And, um, and when I was in the hospital, um, the very, like the first 14 hours, um, they weren't, they couldn't turn me or do anything. They couldn't move me at all they because of my, Mm -hmm. um, fracture was so unstable, but mm. we had to wait overnight because when it happened, the surgeon who was on call had just gotten done with a 14 hour surgery mm -hmm. and he came in and talked to me. And obviously I have an anesthesia background and he's like, listen, the on-call team is tired. Mm -hmm. You have a very Seriously. complicated, unstable mm -hmm. fracture. I want to rest and come in fresh in the morning. You deserve the best me. Be a full day surgery. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they had to do, you know, they had to go in the front and the back. And so during that time, they had me on antibiotics and things. And um, I ended up having diarrhea. And so I ended up with skin breakdown on the mm -hmm. back of my legs from, um, from my knee up to my lower back and it took a month and a half for that to heal with I mean my mother bathed me every single night she did the diaper cream she did all the changes and yeah. everything to make sure that it I mean and it healed and yeah. that's the thing is like these wounds on people with paralysis wounds can take us out I mean, literally can kill us. And, and when people, when you, and, and most able-bodied people, I need you to listen here. It doesn't take long for something very bad to happen to you. If you have a cut or an injury where um, bacteria gets in, it's, yeah. it's less than 24 hours. I believe it's like 12 to 14 hours. I'm not the nurse. You're the nurse, uh, but it's very quick. So 
uh, you need, we need to be thinking about things like this. And when it comes to the travel, um, yes, maybe throwing a tantrum, but definitely I would have, uh, raised hell to the flight crew. I would have raised hell at corporate. I would have called every damn media center there was before we'd even landed. I would have been tweeting this shit out saying mm -hmm. that I just watched a full grown woman have to drag her ass literally yeah. through a plane because of um, this airline refused to help with accessibility. And imagine, imagine if like not every person on that flight, but half of the people on that flight, imagine if 50% of the people on that flight tweeted about it right? and yeah. were outraged about it. Right. There would be change being there made. Would there be would change. be change. There would but, be change. But the only thing that exists is her video Mm -hmm. And it's turned into a judgment against her. Instead, That's wild too, because yeah. not even an uh, not even another person in the plane has a view of it or anything nope. like that. And and you see multiple views of videos all the time, right? This woman was alone in this. Yes. Besides, well, her and her husband, I guess, right. were exactly. alone in this. They were completely. They, and that's that's the other thing is you know I mean, up until what nineteen seventy four. There were the ugly laws yeah. where straight up people with disabilities were not allowed out in public. Yeah. So like these biases still exist to where people like they'll see someone with a disability struggling, but it doesn't register to them that that is a human being. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, there are some people that I've talked to and even myself, I felt this way. Where um, they go, well, I don't feel comfortable going up to, I don't want to make them awkward. I don't want this. There's, first of all, don't touch the person. Don't touch the chair. Don't touch people. Don't, don't touch, touch people. anybody. <laughs> go don't, go don't up to them how you would up to, how you would some, hi, my name is Shay. Yeah. Do you need any assistance? You don't? Well, you look fabulous today. Have a great day. Oh, I can help you. Awesome. What would you need? Like, yep. what can I do for you? It's that simple. It's that, it's that damn simple. Yeah. And. It, you're right, Charmaine. We have a serious problem with people that if it doesn't affect me, I don't care. Um, it's the one of the things that pisses me off, like to no end right now. It's been well, you know, and I as think you guys about know. you know, like white people, right? Like we could never, like, um, you know, earlier when I was talking about like, oh, people with like people who are able-bodied should advocate for people with disabilities because they could be us, but like white people we would never experience what the racism and stuff that black indigenous and you know brown and other people of color um experience in unless the an United alien States, race came right? to the planet right. uh, but we can still call it out when we see it and advocate for change yeah even though we'll never you be in that position and but, even if you don't know how to make the change happen, saying just simply pointing at that and saying that's fucked up and that shouldn't be that way is a great damn start. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Arena taught me like um, when people, you know, are doing uh, are bordering on racism, you know, to just she's like, if you want to make a, you know, TikTok like to respond to a comment or a video, just do it like a I see you. Like, like, you know, like a predator almost like, Hey wolf, I'm a wolf too. I see you. I see, I see you. what mm. you're doing. Oh, so not, not, I see you to the victim, but I see you to the perpetrator. Exactly. Oh. And that's, it, that's what I do on my page all the time is I like, see. I use TikTok sounds to just be like, 
I see you. Yep. And TikTok sounds don't get me community guidelines violations. Mm. Well, and also, um, I do notice that when certain people would come at me at a certain angle, uh, because I appear to be able-bodied, there are certain things they'd say to me that they would never say to you or type it out or whatever, because they know immediately what would happen in the, in the space of social media. It's like they, Oh, being racist is, yeah, I'm not being racist. I don't see color, but but calling you a cripple or crip or something like that, or, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and all of a sudden everybody would be like, Oh, you like, but that's has the extent of this because had this woman, and because, you know, there are people who are black, brown, indigenous who are also disabled and they yeah. affect this and they get this at a, at a higher, at a higher rate. So when it comes to traveling, Lindsay, when it comes to not just being an advocate on, and I'm in a, I apologize. Cause I realize I am about to ask you the question about, please educate us on how to do this. Before. No, no, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> but, I'm an educator. So this but, is part, I, and this is not, this is, this is part of what I do. Right. Um, so this is where I've been getting stuck. Um, it's hard enough to find information on how to do this correctly in the United States. Okay. It's a whole nother realm when I want to go international because they don't have an ADA. That doesn't mean they don't have laws in place. They just don't have something that I know how to ask about. Right. But when it comes to, if we just, cause your, your experience is traveling within the United States and um, to the colonized world of Hawaii um, is what can we do? What's a better, like not just advocating, but what is the step so that you would hope for, for us to take? So um, honestly, if you want to know more about international travel mm -hmm. and accessibility, mm -hmm. I would look for people because there are mm -hmm. many people that have disability that do international travel mm -hmm. and have their whole Instagram or online blogs or TikToks yep. dedicated to this is how I got around Italy. This is how I got around France. This, this is how I got on Scotland. Like, exactly. You know. yeah. And and that's where I go is I just, I, you know, type in like wheelchair travel, right? And mm -hmm. like hashtag wheelchair travel. Or okay. hashtag international wheelchair, you know, and um, like athletes are are really great to look for. Um, people like like, so there's, like Paralympians and things. Yeah, but oh, okay. there's there are tons of um, things outside of the Paralympics that you know um, wheelchair basketball, um, murder ball, murder ball. Like, Actually, I know some yeah, of those. Yeah, outside. and so those pe <laughs> those guys. They, they have, you know, online presence okay. and they travel the world. And so, um, and a lot of them are quadriplegics and okay. so getting, and yeah, they're dudes. Right. But like still there, you oh, can please find, don't tell me there's not even like a, a femme. No, there's definitely, there's, woman I mean, basketball. I straight up traveled <laughs> to Alaska with a woman who, um, is internationally known for shot put that is a C7 quadriplegic mm. and travels the world and is one of my friends on Facebook. Uh, I, I'll try to find her and send her your, yes, your guys this way. That way you guys can kind of look at um, her stuff. But yeah, they, we exist, you know, 
athletic, um, you know, uh, athletic femmes with disabilities exist and they, um, they, they do blogs. My friend Anna is a L3 so, paraplegic okay. and she summited Mount Hood with her crutches okay, and then do that now i know i'm, I'm a, like i'm not no there's a, <laughs> i mean like these are these are the disabled people i know out here that yeah. are doing amazing so yes inner you know uh, the beginning part of everything internets is that you really want to make sure that everything you're following and learning from should be as uh, it's intentional and you're you're looking at it from an intersectional perspective i've said this before i'm going to keep repeating it to yeah. you so if if you're, you're like you I, I yes is it literally sometimes where i literally go um a person within a wheelchair disability check yep do i have also somebody who uh can't speak has has moments where they they cannot they can't have word they can't right. use nonverbal right. yeah. nonverbal non like stuff like you know check all this other stuff but mm -hmm. um when it comes to what it sounds like to me is I'm looking for individuals and individuals, um, how they have men, uh, have made it their way through stuff. It sounds like to me that me trying to find resources to find you like, you don't want to look, you don't want to look to the okay. systems okay. for, yeah. for the information because so, they, okay. they don't, they they don't have, they're all from an able-bodied lens. So it's really not much different than the way I have to maneuver as a, as a brown femme where I'm constantly yeah. seeking out what is the brown femme thing to do in this situation. And I'm looking for individual brown femmes. Yep. Would it's it be helpful? Adding another intersection that, that I'm only partially mindful of yep. and working. Right. It's like, right. it's like when you want to learn about something, mm -hmm. you seek out the people that are actually experiencing that on a day-to-day -day because they don't need a degree in this to be right you're just living your life yeah like right this. so like because like one of the things that was frustrating me when I was starting my journey of um I'm like I know queer people and trans people and you know everything in between live everywhere in the world um how do I they have they own businesses and airbnbs and they want to go and travel and stay places right how do I find it? I've only found one website and it hasn't been updated since the early 2000s mm. and it had no representation of trans. Yeah. Um, it's trans all about, it's all about searching hashtags. Right. That so that seems been... to be it. And that's okay. It's weird, just... but like, I guess it makes sense though. I would much rather find someone who's living that life or, you know, actually in those places doing things, boots on the ground, whatever you want to say, and and get a chance to know it from that perspective and versus. When you guys are searching online, are you guys familiar with Boolean operators? No. I've heard this term before, but I so don't know how to maneuver something them. You should look into Ooh. as far as wanting to search for intersectional things. Okay. Because it's about putting words like and in brackets putting things in quotes. Um, and so you can say like wheelchair in quotes and in brackets. Um, oh, okay. Femme yeah, it's like how you search. And how in can brackets. Search. And then you can put not in brackets. So not, not male, right? Or not men. Like, and, and it will eliminate all of that from the search results so Good. that you're getting 
to exactly like so that you're not having having to go through through 15 pages to find what you want it's like your search results are your search results now granted i was taught that at the doctorate level right in doing literature searches but that is something that's accessible to everyone and you can use it. You can use okay. Boolean operators on Google and I use them all the time. Okay. That's, that is how I do a lot of my advocacy for people, um, especially when they're trying to get signed up for like state insurance, like Medicaid. When you type Medicaid for a certain state into um, Google and just put Medicaid, you know, Georgia into Google, the actual government website is probably two or three pages because Jesus. so many paid, um, paid uh, insurance yeah. companies they- come up first and want you to buy insurance from them. Mm. So I know the Boolean operators to either share with people or to just do to okay. then send the person the link. Okay. So as a, I, as I, we could do this all day and I know yeah, I was, I'm, um, we're transitioning out now. Transi- so, but like, uh, one of the goals of Queer and Far is we, Charmaine and I were really talking about it being a place of resource where people can go to, to see uh, from marginalized, like, oh, I am this, is this, is the, is the, are we like barking up the wrong tree? Are we going about it the wrong way you think? Or like, is this something that is. We're in our research phase. We're, we're learning how to yeah, be that research, think, that I resource. Think- Honestly, so, you know, from a systems, populations, and leadership perspective, yes, please. Um, we are taught to, you know, it used to be um, that leadership was taught from a very hierarchical standpoint, from a very white um, patriarchal standpoint. But the way that I was taught leadership was intersectionally. And mm-hmm. the number one thing with leadership is, Um, you go to the people who are doing the work or experiencing the thing. So like if, if I was managing a hospital and I wanted to make some changes to supplies that nurses would use, I'm going to go to those nurses and ask them what changes to supplies Mm -hmm. would you need? What, what would make, you know, what placement of this, like, where should we put the, um, hand sanitizing units so, so that they are accessible to you at all times, right? Okay. It's easy for you to get to these things. You go to the people who are Mm -hmm. experiencing these things and yeah, you're going to talk to people and get their individual experiences, but that those individual experiences start to give you that intersectional lens to start looking at things. Um, A great book that I'm going to recommend that is Mm -hmm. incredibly intersectional that also deals with disability is called Care Work by Leah Lakshmi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she is a um, brown queer femme with a disability that has done community organizing and has created um, ways where people with disabilities support each other in a community in order to become independent um, away from the system. And it's, it's an amazing resource. It's, it, um, they have it by audiobook. 
Kindle and um, paperback. So yeah, I have really it. I have it. It's in my library. <laughs> it's, my, it's I'm behind. It's in my life. Well, okay. then uh, from what I just heard you say is that uh, Charmaine and I are in our we're in a, we're heading in the the positive direction. Yeah. Of listening to communities and going out there and getting that information so we can perhaps um, make, and then you're make something more universal. Capacity. Yes, that's our goal. And, so, yeah. and I think the process of researching, because this is something that I do in my Black Asian solidarity work, is that you get your hands dirty and then you work through mm -hmm. cleaning it up, right? Like you, you got to get in there first to find out what the problems exactly. are. Exactly. And even exactly. like the way I communicate with activists is different now than the I originally did because I needed to learn what those activism spaces were like mm -hmm. when there's anti-Blackness in Asian communities, anti-Asianness in Black communities. I think this is an extension yep. of that because... What we learn in intersectionality is literally every community is experiencing the same problems, but there's different words, there's different keywords, there's different definitions of what exactly people are experiencing. So, so a lot of times when I'm looking at things, um, especially in like the advocacy work that I do and, you know, the, the community work and um, any changes that I'm trying to make. I try to always think about like, okay, if this was a black trans woman mm -hmm. with a disability, would mm -hmm. this serve her? Would that, you know, would, would this cover? Because if this is going to serve a black trans woman with a disability, granted, I, there are still things that I could be missing. Right. Mm -hmm. But I always, I always try to at least think about like, are we, are we serving the most marginalized person in our society? A black trans woman with a disability that is the most marginalized person in America. the world. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so if we're looking at things and trying to at least like, okay, you know, thinking about ableism, thinking about racism, thinking about just basically like white supremacy culture and like, okay, is this, is this pushing back on that? Is yeah. this fixing, you know, is this going at the root of, of what's going on? So, you know, accessibility is yes, it's ramps and it's doors and it's things like that, but it's also attitudes of people around you and how people love treat that. you. Right. So yes. like my, my capstone project for, um, for my doctorate was not in changing environments to suit people with disabilities in the healthcare system. It was in changing attitudes of healthcare providers. That, that, that does my more education. work. Yeah. Yeah. And my education was all about intersectionality and we had pre-test, post-test, and a three-month follow-up, and the attitudes were significantly changed with a 90-minute intervention of wow. getting them to think intersectionally. That's amazing. 90-minute. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> well, I'm I think, thank you for having this conversation with us, and, and it also being kind of the first uh, step towards, I mean, we're still a fairly new show, but a first step into reaching out to the different communities to mm -hmm. find out in ways that we can be a support. Um, so th thank you for sharing that with us. And why don't you tell everybody before we get out of there, how they can find you and follow you. Okay. So um, you can find me on TikTok, tock um, quadzilla Q B 
U A D Z I L L A two one five on TikTok. And, and on it. Instagram, it's the real Quadzilla two one five. Is there a fake Quadzilla out there on the well, somebody, Instagram street? Somebody already had Quadzilla two one five because so I stole that uh that word from the weightlifting community because they uh, all like do it like leg day quadzilla blah, blah. <laughs> oh i got you and, and i used to be kind of a part of the weightlifting i weightlift quite a bit before my um injury and my dad's part of the weightlifting community so i was like yeah i'm stealing that so that's yeah I, that's why i put the real quadzilla but that was too too wordy for tiktok because when you're it. like in a live like um yeah. comment section people are like the real the and i was like i just gotta that's i gotta much, yeah. quadzilla like that's me i'm just quadzilla and um uh, i tell people it's because i'm an incomplete quadriplegic and i monster my way through this shit yes <laughs> i like it well thank you again for sharing with us yeah. and uh for everybody out there don't forget to follow queer and far on all of our socials queer far pod same problem too long gotta squish it together and so we're vexed uh i'm not waxed yet but i will be in a couple of days <laughs> we're va- we're vaxed, vaxed we're waxed. waxed and fully packed, fully packed. i'm starting let's to pack it. <laughs> let's go let's go queer and far is a main hustle media podcast produced and edited by charmaine fury Co-hosted by Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. The Blazin' and Blurred, and Shay Nanigans. Music is Big Band Savage Jazz by Pine Groove. If you like what you've heard on Queer and Far, please subscribe, rate, and review on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle. This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified. Unique. Voices. Learn more at univazpods.net.